Hear now the word of our God from 1 Samuel chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God, the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted both the men of the city, he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They have sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, with what shall we send it to its place? They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return to him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land, and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods in your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home, away from them, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart, and put in a box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way, and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beit Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so, and took two milk cows, and yoked them to the cart, and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart, and the box with the golden mice, and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beit Shemesh, along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beit Shemesh. Now the people of Beit Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The ark 
the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beit Shemesh, and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart, and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord, and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beit Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beit Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beit Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck seventy men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beit Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath Jaram, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath Jaram came and took up the ark of the Lord, and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jarim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. This is the word of our God. 1 Samuel 4-7 through is held together by the story of the two Ebenezers. Uh, Ebenezer means stone of help, and as Samuel will say in chapter 7, verse 12, till now the Lord has helped us. Ebenezer was the place where Israel had encamped in chapter 4. The first Ebenezer was in the coastal plain near the foothills of Ephraim. It was the place where Israel was defeated in battle, where the ark was captured, and where the two sons of Eli were killed. Stone of help? That doesn't sound like much help. If that's what your God does to you, that's Ebenezer? But think about your life. How often have you been at Ebenezer the first? I mean, when we when we sing, "Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing," you know, everybody always comments on the stone of help in First Samuel seven. How often do they mention the Ebenezer of chapter four? But without the Ebenezer of chapter four, there is no Ebenezer of chapter seven. Now. The way you're more familiar with my saying it is, there is no way to glory except the way of the cross. And what we see tonight in our passage is, you might say, the Ebenezer in chapter 4 was the cross, and now the Ebenezer that we hear about in chapter 5 and 6 is the descent into hell. Because it's from Ebenezer, and that's where chapter 5 starts us, it's from Ebenezer where the Ark of the Covenant descends into hell. Samuel is teaching his people that God's triumph comes through our weakness. The Lord brought judgment upon his own priests and people at Ebenezer because his purpose is to bring Israel through suffering to glory. The death of the priests and the capture of the ark will turn out to be the means that God uses to overthrow the Philistines. Because Ebenezer is the place where God himself, figuratively speaking, in the Ark of the Covenant, is brought under the power of his foes. Ebenezer is the place where Ichabod is pronounced. 
no glory. And we'll hear throughout our passage all sorts of references to glory and weightiness, heavy hand, or the lighter, you know, his hand will be lighter upon us. All that language is the, is the language used of glory or no glory, weightiness or no weightiness. The glory has departed from Israel. Ebenezer is the place where darkness falls, where the lights go out. When news comes from Ebenezer, the blind priest falls over backward and dies. The pregnant woman gives birth to a son and dies. And yet, when God himself is brought under the power of the devil, when our Lord Jesus Christ descends into hell, he casts Dagon on his face, binds the strong man, and plunders his house, rescuing his people from the bonds of sin and death. Our, our larger catechism puts it this way. Christ's humiliation after his death. Oh, thank you. Probably, I'm just going to, this is what's going to happen. At the end of each page, it's going to go flying. And so if people want to gather them and keep them, that's fine. But I, I won't need it anymore. But um, thank you. Um, Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried and continuing in the state of the dead and under the power of death till the third day, which has been otherwise expressed in these words. He descended into hell. So in tonight's story, we hear about the the descent into hell of the Ark of God. Now, Israel had viewed the Ark as a magic talisman. If we just bring the Ark into battle, God will be with us. He'll give us the victory over our foes. They had a reason for thinking that. When the Ark of the Covenant went before them at, in the days of Joshua, the Jordan River parted. We come to a, a baptism tonight, and the, the walking, the, the, the passing through the Jordan River is a picture of baptism as Israel is is baptized as they come into the sea through the Jordan River. And as the Jordan, you know, the ark went before them, the Jordan River parted. The ark went before them, Jericho's walls came tumbling down. Israel received their inheritance. So the idea was, huh, we, we need the ark to go before us, and then we'll win. Now, we should be clear about something. Israel's problem is not that they had too high a view of the ark. Their problem is they have too low a view of the ark. Because in chapter 5, the ark does everything that Israel had failed to do. Israel went out to fight against the Philistines and lost. What does the ark do? <laughs> the ark throws Dagon on his face, renders him helpless, and, and, and chops them up into little pieces. The Ark destroys the Philistines, killing Philistines. You know, they're, they're, the, the Philistines are, are helpless before the Ark of the Covenant. If, if Samuel was trying to rebuke Israel for thinking that the Ark has supernatural powers, chapter 5 is entirely counterproductive. The problem is not that, it, it's, it's not that they, they have too high a view of the Ark. They have too low a view of the ark because the ark is where God is present with his people. And when his people are living in rebellion against him, God's presence is not a very comforting thing. And that's part of what God is showing his people. Because the exile of the ark, this descent into hell, is designed to show Israel that God is the one who goes before his people to defeat and destroy all his and their enemies. 
it's showing ultimately what our Lord Jesus will do when he descends into hell and bears in his own body the wrath and curse that we deserve. Because in before, before Samuel ever goes to battle against the Philistines, before Saul, before David, the first victory against the, the Philistines in Samuel's gospel is when the ark goes alone into Ashdod. And yes, I called it Samuel's gospel because Samuel is all about the good news of the coming kingdom of God. This is the gospel according to Samuel. It's actually, as I'm listening to Elliot as he starts his Matthew series, I'm like, this is, this is going to be very much. The, the, there's so much parallels between what Matthew's doing and what Samuel is doing. So the, the ark is not magical. Magical objects are used by people forgetting what they want. No, the ark is holy. Holy objects are not particularly useful for getting us what we want. Holy objects are useful for connecting us to God. And now, in, in our day, we have a lot fewer sort of holy objects. I mean, we talk about this in terms of sacraments are holy objects. And when we come to the Lord's table, the bread and the wine are consecrated, set apart from a common use to a holy use. The water of baptism is set apart from a common use to a holy use. Holy objects connect us to God. It's part of what we learned in the Leviticus series as God was teaching his people about the holy and the profane, the clean and the unclean. Holy objects are things that God has given to us to draw us near to himself. And the, the tabernacle is holy, the sacrifices are holy, the priestly garments are holy. And through these holy objects, God is drawing his people near to himself. In the capture of the ark, here in chapter 5, in the death of the priests, the holy is profaned. So watch what happens when the Philistines profane the holy. First, they, they bring the ark from Ebenezer to Ashdod, from the stone of help. The Ark of the Covenant leaves Israel from the Stone of Help. And the Philistines bring the Ark of God to the house of Dagon in order to demonstrate that Dagon was greater than Yahweh. And Yahweh wants, wants Dagon to understand, Oh, no, no. Your armies may have defeated my armies, but that was only because I was the one who handed them over to you. And now you think you've captured me. Try again bow before me, and Dagon does. Now, verse, uh, in verse 3, where it says that they took Dagon and put him back in his place, now, that, that just sounds like, okay, that's what they did. But if you think about it, this is their God. Their God is being, I mean, just, if I had said, so they picked up Yahweh and put him back in his place. You'd be like, that's blasphemy. And yeah, that would be blasphemy. I, mean, I, even, I even hesitated to say the hypothetical because that's like, no, that's just wrong. Because, but it's, it's utterly ridiculous to think that you could pick up your God and put him in his place. Although, that's what idolatry is all about. Idolatry is where we, we worship something that is not God. And when we worship something that is not God, we invariably are the ones putting the God in his place. But the ark 
of the board cannot be manipulated for selfish or nationalist ends. They're trying to use the Ark of the Covenant to show the greatness of the Philistines. Uh, by the way, uh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark gets lots of things wrong, but their, their, the basic premise of the movie is that there is actually no way that the Nazis could have used the Ark for their own purposes. That's exactly right. The holy cannot be manipulated for the means of some other end. But in the moment of defeat, when Yahweh is brought under the power of his enemies, it turns out to be the moment of his victory. Just like the cross. Just like the descent into hell. So first, Yahweh cut down uh, the god of the Philistines. Dagon did homage before Yahweh in verse 3. Dagon is revealed as helpless before Yahweh. He needs his people to come along and pick him up. Yahweh's people were pretty incompetent to do anything for him. But Dagon's people are the only ones that can do anything for him. And then finally, Dagon is chopped into pieces as his head and his hands get chopped off before the Lord. Now that... Yahweh has descended into hell. The gods of hell bow before Yahweh. And then the Lord afflicts the people of Ashdod, and the the hand of the Lord was heavy on them. Now remember that Ichabod's mother had said, the glory has departed, and that word glory means to make heavy. So when the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Philistines, the picture here is that the glory, the weightiness, has departed from Israel, and now the weightiness has fallen on the Philistines. The glory of God is crushing them. Because the glory of God, apart from his mercy, is going to destroy you. To come into the presence of the glory of God, apart from his mercy and grace in Jesus Christ, will only bring judgment. And that's why the picture of the descent into hell here in chapters 5 and 6 is so important. Because it's not that God sent some great Israelite warrior to go before him, before them. Sure, in the book of Judges we saw Samson doing something like that. And then Samson dies. But the picture that we're getting here is that it's not enough to have a Samson. God himself must go before his people. The first victory, the whole book of Samuel is going to be about about Israel's conflict with the Philistines. And before anybody else goes up against the Philistines and wins, Yahweh does it first. The Lord goes before his people. He descends into hell. He takes the wrath and curse upon himself for the sake of his people. He's telling us what kind of God he is. He is a God who does not stand back and say, Oh, just try harder. You'll get there someday. He's a God who says, You have failed over and over again. Yeah, and you're going to keep failing. And the only way that you're going to get there is if I go there first. And that's what he does in Jesus. He goes there first. He takes upon himself the wrath and curse that we deserved. Now, it's beautiful watching the Philistines. I'm, I'm convinced that there are many Philistines who we will see in glory. Because the, the people of Ekron, because after the, the, Ashdod, you know, people are getting sick and dying. and They're getting these tumors. And, and then it comes to Gath. And the people in Gath are like, no, we're getting it. And then when it, starts, when it shows up at Ekron, they're like, okay, this, no, no, you're trying to kill us. And you know, they have brought around to us the Ark of God, the God of Israel, to kill us and our people. They are seeing that this, they, 
they are helpless before the God of Israel. The ark of the God of Israel is holy, and we are not, therefore we are doomed. So then chapter 6 tells us that the ark was in exile among the Philistines for seven months. And in that short period of time, Yahweh convinces the Philistines of his power. So the lords of the Philistines are called called together with their priests, and they ask, okay, so what do we do with this holy object? And the priests and, and diviners answer, give glory to the God of Israel. Give weightiness. His hand has been weighty on you. His hand has been heavy. Now it is time for you to give honor, to wait, give weight to the God of Israel. And, he said, and they say, and don't send it away empty, but return a guilt offering. Recognize your guilt and demonstrate. They don't understand the Levitical principles of guilt offerings, so naturally they don't follow those. But they do something. They basically they take these golden objects and basically say, "This, this is this is this is really valuable, expensive." They're paying a heavy price, a heavy price for the heavy hand of God that has been on them, and and they know their history. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? Uh, they've heard the stories about what had happened in Egypt several generations before. And when God deals severely with you, you need a soft heart, ready and willing to turn away from sin and follow Jesus. And the Philistine priests also want to make sure, okay, is this all just a coincidence? I mean, I mean sure, it's, it seems really likely that something's happening here, but... Uh, but Let's set this up so that if this really is from God, from the God of Israel, that is this will only work if this is in fact His, His purpose and His destruction against us. So they use two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and take their calves away from them. Milk cows do not have a tendency to wander; they want to return home to be milked. They have a strong maternal instinct, and also if they've never been yoked. I, I don't know how much you know about cows, but um, it takes training to get cows to work together on a yoke. They don't naturally just go, oh, let's just do this together. So two milk cows who have never been yoked, the likelihood of them working together and going in the wrong direction uphill, that's, that's just not going to happen. But sure enough, that is what happens. And then the cows stop at the great stone in the field of Joshua of Beit Shemesh. <laughs> so they, they, they go exactly to the place where the Philistines had said, well, if they go there, then that will be from the Lord. And so then they go there, and then they stop there. So the very thing that they, the test they had set up is what God does. And the people of Beit Shemesh call for the Levites, and they, the Levites take the Ark of the Lord, and they offer the two milk cows as a burnt offering to the Lord, and the men of Beit Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifices to the Lord, basically saying, thank you, Lord, for returning the Ark to us. Thank you, Lord, for returning to us. Because remember, the Ark of the Covenant is, is not just a sort of interesting you know, archaeological tidbit. The Ark of the Lord is where God had said his presence would dwell with his people. The Lord has returned from exile. The Lord has returned from his descent into hell. It's a picture of the resurrection of God himself triumphing over his enemies and returning to his people. And so, naturally, they have a a covenant meal to celebrate and rejoice. 
Now, this last section I've entitled The Holiness of God because it's important that we see this as well, that we see God's holiness. And we don't, when it says that the, the, the lords of the Philistines are watching and they, and they saw it, uh, what does that mean? Well, we'll hear, we'll hear later in the book of Samuel that there are many Philistines who follow David. I usually point to Goliath and Goliath's oath as a reason. Goliath said that if David killed him, the Philistines would serve Israel. And at least some Philistines seem to have honored that. But decades before David became king, there were some Philistines who saw what God had done. They saw. Given that Eli's eyes were blind and he couldn't see, when it says that the lords of the Philistines saw, I'm inclined to say, at least, I'd be, and I'm, I'm, I tend to be rather charitable in terms of, did they, you know, what did they see? Well, they saw that the Lord is God. That means something. There's hope for those who are far off, even the Philistines. There's hope for out, outsiders and misfits like us. Now, there's also a warning in this conclusion in our passage because some of the men of Beit Shemesh looked upon the Ark of the Lord. And this the verb just means to, to gaze upon. And the God had told Aaron back in Numbers 4 that the Ark should always be covered when it travels, lest the people gaze on it and die. And that appears to be exactly what they've done. It's they're basically to, to look upon God and the ark is the, the representation of God's presence with them, is, is something God had forbidden them to do. They had no regard for the holiness of God. And apparently when the Levites came, they didn't bother covering the ark. And so the Lord is reminding his people again that I will judge you for your sin. You need to do what I say. And the men of Bet Shemesh are respond by saying, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? And so they, 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 they recognize the Ark is not just a magic talisman. The Ark of the Covenant is far more powerful because the Ark is holy. The Ark is the place where, where God's presence stands. The Ark is the place where earth and heaven meet on, on earth. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool, and the Ark of the Covenant is where God dwells in the midst of his people, where the glory of the Lord dwells. So when they ask, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, we should hear echoes of Psalm 24, who can ascend the hill of the Lord, we can, which we saw repeatedly throughout the Leviticus series. This was the point of what it means to talk about God's holiness. How can humanity, how can even the people of God come into the presence of a God who strikes people dead when they get too close? But we've already begun to see it. It's when the Lord himself goes and descends into hell to do what his people could not do for themselves. It's when God himself takes upon himself the judgment, the verdict, the wrath that was on us. And so they send messengers to Kiriath-Jarim saying, come get the ark, we don't, we don't want it. And now uh, you might wonder, why did they take it to Kiriath-Jarim? Why not take it back to Shiloh? Well, um, why take it to Shiloh? Who would be there anymore? I mean, they consecrate this guy, Eleazar, the son of Abinadab, to have charge of the ark. 
because Eli just died, his two sons died, Ichabod's seven months old. Uh, who's going to take charge of the ark? What, what are we going to do? Now, the Bible doesn't mention this, but the archaeology of the town of Shiloh suggests that the town of Shiloh was destroyed about the year 1050 BC. In other words, right about the same time as the death of Eli. I mean, did the Philistines continue their assault and actually reach the city of Shiloh? I don't know. At any rate, there's no return to Shiloh. Shiloh had been the place where the tent of meeting had been established in Joshua's day. And in Eli's day, Shiloh falls. The exile of Shiloh is actually referred to by the prophets. Jeremiah says in Je Jeremiah 7.12, Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. Shiloh is where Israel's first exile happens. We, we usually focus on the big exile after the destruction of the temple in AD 70. I'm sorry, in, in BC 568, 86. But when before that, Shiloh was the exile of God's people. God had struck down Eli and his sons on the same day that he had removed the ark from Shiloh. The ark was in exile for seven months, but the priesthood is still in doubt. Eli and his sons are dead. His grandson Ichabod is an infant. The man of God had spoken in chapter 2 of a faithful priest, but he had said that, that God, you know, God had said, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. Where was that faithful priest? The ark is back, but Israel is still in exile. We need a priest who will be able to take up this calling. Indeed, we need a priest who will descend into hell before us in order to take upon himself the wrath and curse of God. We need a priest who will be God himself, who can, who can go before us to defeat our enemies, and also truly man, because he must be one of us in order for us to go with our God and be with him forever. The This language of exile is also taken up by the Apostle Peter when he addresses us as elect exiles of the dispersion. We are called into union with our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who descended into hell for us, the one who endured death and exile for us. And we also are called to walk the exile path. That path begins in our baptism, when we are united to Christ in a death like his, so that we might also be united to him in a resurrection like his.